Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So we are on chapter 18 and we're on verse 14, 15, 14? Okay. What? Oh. <laughs> 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 so this, oh, wait, that, I'm a, I was looking, sorry. So we'll be reading through some verses before we get to a purport. Well, So if you recall, uh, this is kind of figurative in the sense that uh, Bhumi has taken the form, the form of a cow and showing that, uh, what is it, Sarva Kama Dukamahi, that, that the earth satisfies everyone's desires, these different demigods and others and, and, and creatures, etc., are going to be uh, milking the earth for their sustenance and for their residence. And it's funny, I was flying in, not funny, but I was thinking about this as I was flying in from uh, Sacramento yesterday, and I had a window seat, which I usually don't have, but I had a window seat. So I was looking at, at, uh, at the earth. And, you know, usually, you know, I, I don't know, if I look outside, I see this big house or this road or whatever, you know, and just, but this time I was thinking, well, this is Mother Earth. And then, you know, especially when you go through the uh, Midwest, well, no, even, because I was flying into Dulles, uh, it's practically rural all the way until a few miles before you land, right? So you see all the farmland and you see the crops, and, you know, and now you don't see the crops, but you see the, the you know, the cultivation, there's something going on. And I was just trying to meditate how this is, uh, how Bumi, she provo she provides everything for us, right? And there and there it was, you know. So I was trying to think. This is the Earth is Mother Bumi instead of just whatever. Looking, you know, trying to think a little bit more shastrically about what I was seeing, and it was kind of uh, kind of a nice experience, you know, just thinking that here's Mother Bumi. I'm looking at her, and she's providing all these different uh, farms. Uh, and land, well, she's providing all this land so that we can get our necessities met. And that's one way you can, you know, well, that's literally the 30,000 foot view of things. <laughs> literally. <clears throat> well, uh, so 15, all the demigods made Indra, the king of heaven, into a calf. And from the earth, they milked the beverage Soma, which is nectar. Thus, they became very powerful in mental speculation and bodily and sensual strength. And Prabhupada goes on to say that Soma, it's a kind of drug, but it is not an intoxicant per se. Uh, the sons of Diti and the demons transform Prahlad, Prahlad Maharaj, who was born in, in a sort of family, into a calf, and they extracted various kinds of liquor and beer, which they put into a pot made of iron. So here, um, the uh, what what Mother Earth provides is not unidirectional; it's omnidirectional, right? So she even gives things that for people who are not God conscious or not trying to live a pious life provides uh, 
the necessities for liquor and beer, which is generally what do you, not that any of you know, but uh, what do you need in order to create beer? Grains, yeah, <laughs> right. The inhabitants of Gandharva Loka and Apsara Loka, Apsaro Loka, made Vishva, Vishvavasu, uh, Vishvavasu into a calf, and they drew the milk into a lotus flower pot. The milk took the shape of sweet musical art and beauty. The fortunate inhabitants of Pitri Loka, who presided over the funeral ceremonies, made Aryama into a calf. With great faith, they milked Kavya, a food offered to the ancestors, into an unbaked earthen pot. After this, the inhabitants of Siddhaloka, as well as the inhabitants of Vidyara, Vidyadhara Loka, transformed the great sage Kapila into a calf, and making the whole sky into a pot, they milked out specific yogic mystic powers, beginning with anima. Indeed, the inhabitants of Vidyadhara Loka acquired the art of flying in the sky. Others, also the inhabitants of the planets known as Kimpurusha Loka, made the demon Maya into a calf, and they milked out mystic powers by which one can disappear immediately from another's vision and appear again in different forms. We see that in some of the pastimes of uh, Vajruva Maharaj, right? In the, and he's fighting the yakshas and they're appearing and disappearing. Right? Um, then the yakshas, rakshashas, ghosts, and witches who are, inhabit, who are inhabited uh, no, sorry, habituated to eating flesh, transformed Lord Shiva's incarnation, Rudra, Bhuta, uh, Bhutanath, into a calf, and milked out beverages made of blood and put them into a pot made of skulls. Uh, that reminds me of two things. Well, first of all, I was, uh, well, one thing I'll just mention. I was reading, there was a really nice New York Times article about a... Uh, very, very ancient uh, monastery in outside of Athens. You have to take a boat there uh, to get there. And this one New York Times reporter was talking about um, uh, their visit there, spent three days there. And it was actually really, really, really serious sadhana going on there. You know, uh, basically kirtan for four hours because it's call and response. And then individual prayer. And basically it's all... Um, what we would call like sadhana, except they have like three or four hours of work that they do to maintain the, the monastery. And they also go by an interesting clock. Their clock starts at their day, the new day starts at sunset. So they get up at 11 or 12 or 1 in the morning but, uh, and start there, but you know, they don't go by our watch. <laughs> and, and anyway, it was interesting. But one of the interesting parts of it was um, that I think the rope that that they wear, or something like that, is uh, somehow in the form or, or at least depicts um, bones and skulls to remind them that that death that they you know that death is upon them. You know, um, just like I remember one devotee once gave a class saying, uh, uh, "You should always remember uh, you could die at any time and you're not very advanced." So. So that, I thought that was uh, so. Here it talks about uh, a pot made of skulls, but it's it's true that we should remember Janma Mrtu Jaravyati Dukkha Doshanu Darshanam. That uh, you know, 
any uh, time where we're, you know, kind of, ha you know, satisfied in the material world or, or even a little happy, we have to remember that, you know, we're driving along on the road, but the road is ultimately going to hit a brick wall. It's just reality, right? And uh, Ramburu Mataji has been talking, you know, she, she knows quite a bit about that, having to deal with people. Uh, it's outside of Athens, or at least they flew into Athens to go there, but I know you have to take a boat to get there. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and you even have to have like almost like a passport to go there. You, they, they, they check you out ahead of time. And I think they only allow men, I believe, on the island as well. Yeah, it's Greek Orthodox, yeah. Yeah, they said you don't want to mention the Pope to them. Because, you know, Greek Orthodox and the Catholic Church don't get along very well they, ever since... Um, Constantinople. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but it, it it was it was nice article because um, the person was very appreciative, and I don't think that the writer was even a theist. It was a I don't even believe he was a theist, but he was just saying how. Uh, and the interesting thing is the person that he met there was from New York, <laughs> and had a successful career in the '80s, and was living the single lifestyle, and then somehow he got a calling and. And move there. Yeah. Hmm. Thereafter, cobras and snakes without hoods, large snakes. Oh, therefore, cobras and snakes without hoods, large snakes, scorpions, and many other poisonous animals took poison out of the planet Earth as their milk and kept this poison in snake holes. They made a calf out of takshika. Who's takshika? The snake bird that seemed to have killed Parikshit Maharaj, right? But we understand that actually he had already left before the snake, right? But yes. The four-legged animals, like the cows, made a calf out of the bull who carries Lord Shiva and made a milking pot out of the forest. Thus they got green, fresh green grasses to eat. Ferocious animals like tigers transformed a lion into a calf <clears throat> and thus they were able to get flesh for milk. The birds made a calf out of Garuda, and took milk from the planet Earth in the form of moving insects and non-moving plants and grasses. The trees made a calf out of the banyan tree, <clears throat> and thus they derived milk in the form of many delicious juices. The mountains transformed the Himalayas into a calf, and they milked a variety of minerals into a pot made of the peaks of hills. The planet Earth supplied everyone his respective food. During the time of King Prithu, the earth was fully under the control of the king. Thus, all the inhabitants of the earth could get their food supply by creating various types of calves and putting the particular types of milk in various pots. My dear Vidura, chief of the Kurus, in this way, King Prithu and all the others who subsist on food created different types of calves and milked out their, very, their respective edibles. Thus, they received their various foodstuffs, which were symbolized as milk, symbolized as milk. Thereafter, King Prithu was very satisfied with the planet Earth, for she sufficiently supplied all food to various living entities. Thus, he developed an affection for the planet Earth, just as if she were his own daughter. So he, we talked about this last week. So he was, he was because he, he, had a, he has a service to maintain the praja, he was quite angry, uh, quite upset that he couldn't do his service of maintaining the project. But now that he could, and pacified. And, yeah. 
After this, the king of all kings, Maharaj Prithu, leveled all rough places on the surface of the globe by breaking up the hills with the strength of his bow. By his grace, the surface of the globe almost became flat. So we, we yeah. To all uh, the citizens of the state, King Prithu was as good as a father. Thus, he was visibly engaged in giving them proper subsistence and proper employment for for subsistence. After leveling the surface of the globe, he earmarked different places for residential quarters in as much as they were desirable. In this way, the king founded many types of villages, settlements, and towns and built forts, residence for cowherdsmen, stables for the animals, and places for the royal camps mining places, agricultural towns, and mountain villages. Before, before the reign of King Prithu, there was no planned arrangement for different cities, villages, pasturing grounds, etc. Everything was scattered, and everyone constructed his residential quarters according to his own convenience. However, since, since King Prithu's uh, plans were made for towns and villages. And Purport Prophet says, from this statement it appears that towns and city planning is not new, but has been coming down since the time of King Prithu. In India, we can see regular planning methods evident in very old cities. In Srimad Bhagavatam, there are many descriptions of such ancient cities. Even 5,000 years ago, Lord Krishna's capital, Dwarka, was well planned, and similar other cities, Mathura and Hastinapur, now New Delhi, were also well planned. Thus, the planning of cities and towns is not a modern innovation, but was existing in bygone ages. So, um, obviously anyone who's been to New Delhi, it's not so well planned today. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but it is, it is um, first of all, does anyone, what is the best, anyone know, I'm sure you know, I think we mentioned it last week, what is the best planned city in India? Chandigarh, yes, yes. Chandigarh is actually one of the listed always in the top ten best cities in the world in terms of planning. Um, and it, yeah, it was uh, it was well planned uh, around the I think the turn of the 19, you know around eight, late 1800s, and then fully more developed uh, after partition. Um, and it's kind of like New Delhi, right? It's not a uh, it's not part of a state, right? It's uh, its own, what? Union it's a union territory. Yes, yeah, and it, and it's and it is. I've been there. It's kind of it's quite nice, and it's actually clean, which is more than you can say for a lot of cities in India. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's very it's 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 nice. And and when you're there, or when you're in a well-planned place, they say other places. Singapore is supposed to be well-planned, and uh, um, some other some other cities. Um, the point is that environment is important and environment can affect our consciousness very much so right um, and that's why you know uh, it's very important to cultivate the mode of goodness so one can cultivate the mode of goodness even in planning a city right I mean you know uh, one of the nicest parts of New York City for example is this huge Central Park right in you know basically Right? You know, you could have said, my gosh, you know how much money you could make if you sold Central Park and build high-rises there? I, I couldn't even imagine how much money you could make. Uh, it'd be in the trillions, probably. Right? But it, it, it's, uh, 
when I was growing up, it was not always considered a safe place to roam around, but nowadays it's much better. But it's, it, you know, sit, planned cities have parks, have, you know, uh, places for residents, have places for business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, modern uh, counties, and they try to do things like that, right? Like here in, here in uh, Montgomery County, if you cut down a tree, you have to plant three trees somewhere else in the, in the area. And it's been a little tricky for us because we can't build the new temple here because they have all these rules about floodplains and setbacks. And a matter of fact, there's a whole discussion now about whether we, they, they would ideally, although they may adjust it, ideally they would, this area here, they wouldn't even want to be ever mowed. They just wanted to grow wild because that's actually their, their setback rules, which wouldn't be as nice as if we could create nice gardens and things. But the point is, um, and whether they're, you know, we can, we can argue about whether uh, their rules are draconian or not or whatever, but that's not really the point. But the point is that planning things, uh, well, first of all, planning things is good, right? Before you do something, right? what do they say about um, carpenters? Measure twice, cut once. Is that right? Yeah, because once you cut, <laughs> right? So, so having plans for our life, having plans for uh, a new temple, having plans for, um, you know, so many things, it's, it's good to do that. Of course, plans change. That's another point. Um, now we're getting a little off subject, but so environment is, is important. And here, Prithu Maharaj, he created a, uh, you know, a, a city that had residential quarters in one place and pasturing grounds, cities, villages. Cities don't have to be a bad place. I mean, we know that Prabhupada would quote Copler, C-O-W-P-E-R, the, the uh, poet, Calper, yeah, who said that, uh, what is that? Basically that man created the cities and God created the country. <laughs> right, something along those lines. Um, and yes, living in a more natural or rural setting is more in the mode of goodness and is more sattvic. But for service, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur used to say that uh, we, want, we want our temples in the, in the busiest places possible in order to do that service of, of helping people. And we also see, though, anyway, there's also very often a very difference in consciousness between people who live in the country and people who live in cities. Any thoughts on planned cities, environment, etc.? No? Yes? Maybe? Okay. So then, shall we move on? What, 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 Eisenhower said, planning is, making plans is useless, but planning is essential. Okay. Uh, because of D-Day was one of the greatest plans ever. And he, he did say, I think it was Eisenhower, said that uh, the plan is nothing. Planning is everything. Right. Once the plan is planning. nothing. Planning is, yes, because, uh, yes, we have to make plans. And we also have to, I mean, from a Krishna conscious view, we make plans and then we see what Krishna's arrangement is. Or providence, sometimes Prabhupada would call it. And see what, what providence has in store for us. And there's, that, there's that other saying, right, that if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Oops. Okay. 
He also said, live as if this were your last day and make plans as if you were going to live forever. Ah, nice, nice. <laughs> and the reality is we do live forever. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say there's this other quote which says, environment is more powerful than willpower. What is? Environment is more powerful than willpower. Ah. Like it has such an effect on one's like determination. Environment, that's a very good point. So that's... Yeah. That means that we can also plan our surroundings, and that that's so that we don't have to uh, just rely on willpower, right? Uh, and willpower is like a muscle; you can only use it so much. It's not unlimited. Of course, if Krishna wants to make it unlimited, he can. But yes, yeah, so much of our of our uh, use of our intelligence is creating our environment. That's nice. Thank you. And I was also thinking um, of just to not confuse our plans, you know, with Krishna's vision or, you know, uh, our vision in Krishna consciousness. You know, the plans may not work. We make plans and the plans right. may not work, but not to think immediately that, okay, Krishna doesn't want this or, you know, this is not what I should be doing, you know. Right. To separate the planning from the broader, like, vision. Yes, did you hear, did yeah. you see that video that my wife was? Yeah, yeah, so she's, she's referring to a video by Andy Stanley, who's a, Quite a well, quite a famous uh, uh, Christian um, speaker, and he was making this point that uh, you don't, you know, don't give up on your vision, but plans. Maybe he was talking about the first fundraiser they ever did at his temple, and his his church is very successful now. And he said it's total flop, <laughs> but the vision of having a beautiful new temp, uh, church, what they wanted, you know, that should be maintained. But the plans, you know, you know. So yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so we go on to uh, chapter 19. And the great sage Maitreya continued, My dear Vidura, King Pritsu initiated the performance of 100 horse sacrifices at the spot where the river Saraswati flows towards the east. This piece of land is known as Brahmavarta, and it was controlled by Swayambhuvamanu. When the most powerful Indra, the king of heaven, saw this, he considered the fact that King Prithu was going to exceed him in fruit of activities. Thus, Indra could not tolerate the great sacrificial ceremonies performed by King Prithu. And Srila Prabhupada writes in the purport, he was envious due to fear that those who perform great sacrifices for the execution of mystic yoga may occupy his seat, may take his place. Since no one in the material world can tolerate another's advancement, everyone in the material world is called Matsara, envious. In the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam, it is therefore said that Srimad Bhagavatam is meant for those who are completely near Matsara, non-envious. In other words, one who is not freed from the contamination of envy cannot advance in Krishna consciousness. In Krishna consciousness, however, if someone excels another person, the devotee who is excelled thinks how fortunate the other person is to be advancing in devotional service. Such non-envy is typical of Vaikuntha, spiritual world. However, when one is envious of his competitor, that is material. The demigods posted in the material world are not exempt from envy. Uh, and I, I like this saying uh, that you can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. <laughs> so, uh, or, you know, in, the, in, in reverse, Prabhupada would sometimes say, you know, a pauper can be proud of their penny, right? So we can be um, 
proud of even the most insignificant things and we can be envious of others for, you know, uh, not very good reasons. So a devotee, so it's, it's so easy to be, to, it, the mind can very easily uh, revert to envy and a, a devotee wants to try to catch themselves. And one of the best ways to catch oneself really ultimately is to be thinking of Krishna because if you see some, someone who has something that you don't have or has some quality that you don't possess or has some ability that you don't have, if you're thinking of Krishna, then you remember Krishna says in the Gita, Parusham Nishu, that he's the ability in others so that you can, be, you can actually be praising Krishna. Just look, Krishna is working through um, Mahamantra Prabhu because he's so good at in, engaging others in chanting japa, right? And you don't have to say, oh, you know, you know, he probably cheats or something. <laughs> right? Or, uh, right? Prabhupada tells some story about that. Does anyone remember what it is? That he, I forget what it is. You know, you see someone who's very rich, well, he probably got an inheritance. or You know, <laughs> you know that, that, uh, that envy can come out so easily. But right at the very beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam, it says, paramo nirmat saranam satam. That, that ideally, that, 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 well, although the Bhagavatam is for everyone, it really uh, is relished by those who are non-envious. Right? So, thinking of Krishna and understanding uh, the bigger picture, because you, you often envy, it just be, it's, it's our, our, our vision is so broadened by Krishna consciousness, right? That, he, that there's God, that, does, that he's the source of everything, material and spiritual. There's a spiritual world, and Krishna's so loving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then envy, we, we micro-focus on, you know, someone can play the drum better than us or whatever, you know, something so insignificant in the bigger picture of life, <laughs> right? Or, you know, I have a Toyota, but he has a Lexus, you know, like, you know, big deal, right? Right, but we, it can become, the mind can so easily make a mountain out of a molehill, as we say, right? Um, so, it, so it's really a part of sadhana, we could say, to catch ourselves when that happens and redirect the mind to, to Krishna and to philosophy and also just to being a good human being, right? And, uh, and the other thing is, if, if you ever have in your mind, you see someone who, can, let's say they can give a good class or they can play Murdunga very well or they can sing or whatever, and you kind of, in your back of your mind, you kind of wish, oh, I wish I could do that. Well, that also is setting us up for another birth <laughs> in order to fulfill that material desire. <laughs> so, um, so envy is not, a, uh, is not a wonderful quality. It's one of the qualities that is meant to be, uh, to be checked and ultimately overcome. And really, ultimately, you overcome it by... Uh, by remembering Krishna, um, and also just being uh, appreciative if someone has something. And also, if you see someone who's more advanced in Krishna consciousness, it really ultimately means, ultimately, it, it essentially means that, let's say we're struggling with something that that person isn't struggling with. They, they've overcome that, and they're doing well. It means that either previously in this life or in a previous life, they overcame the struggle that we're going through now. So uh, ultimately, uh, not ultimately, but uh, therefore we would want to get their blessings. 
so that we can follow in their footsteps. Right. Yes, the microphone. I'm envious of you. You have a Ralph Lauren shirt on. <laughs> it's like six years old. Oh, okay. So, anyway, <laughs> I read a quote once, and it went something like this. If you praise someone, you take on their good karma. If you blame someone, you take on their bad karma. Well, um, has anyone read that? Is anyone familiar with that? But Yeah, okay. Well, maybe some, it sounds like a Mahabharata thing. Or someone told who told me um, what? Jagai Madai. Uh huh. It's there. That statement. No, something similar. Something similar to that. I was going to say um, one thing. Radhika Raman Prabhu said that uh, is it the Padma Purana, the Skanda Purana, that is so huge, right? He said if you. He said, generally, you can just say, oh, it's in the Skanda Prana, and no one will ever, ever be able to even find it. <laughs> I'm not saying we should do that. <laughs> he said, yeah, Padma Prana. I think it was the Skanda Prana. Yeah. Anyway, um, but essentially, it makes, it, it makes sense, yes. Um, and matter of fact, in the, you know, our tradition, the Vedic tradition, um, one, one has a teacher, a guru, and a guru, and there's gurus for math, there's gurus for music, there's gurus for archery, there's gurus for spiritual life, that by being non-envious of them, by serving them, and, and be, um, what's that verse? In chapter 4, verse 34? Tadvidhi panipatena paripashnena sevaya, sevaya. That by approaching with humility and service, one gradually gets the 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 the, the guru or the teacher um, transfers their expertise to the to the student. Like that. So we so in in the Vedic tradition, even your math teacher, you would touch their feet and you know because um, you want to get their there. There was a power in blessings, right? Um, and uh, what, what, what's the Sanskrit word for that? Blessings? Ashirva, yes. So by getting their blessings, one gets that ability. So that, yes, so that makes sense. But even more than just karma, one actually gets the, their knowledge and their abilities like that. And therefore, even, even in, in our world, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the uh, academic world, et cetera, it's usually best to have a mentor not just someone, not just a lecturer at the university, but actually someone who takes you under their wing and guides you practically in whatever uh, abilities you're trying to acquire, right? And uh, even like in Oxford, um, you know, Oxford University, uh, often it's the tutorial system where you just you have a, a, a tutor, and especially for the more advanced degrees. And it's not like you're in this big classroom, but you just have this tutor, and you have to work really hard. Um, but it's, yeah, it's more like that. And even if you go to the University of Virginia, won't, uh, and you look at the uh, rotunda, the um, the the original uh, rooms for the, uh, for the students and the teacher, it was very much like a gurukul setup. There was the teacher's room, and then the students' room. Has anyone ever seen that? And then, then at the end is that beautiful building, the round building, 
but on the sides, on both sides, it's, it's very much like a gurukul system. You were actually living with the teacher and learning from them, not just in the classroom. It was uh, Thomas Jefferson who designed that, right? Yes. I don't know if he designed that the basketball team would win yesterday, but he designed that. Uh, <laughs> Any, some thoughts on envy? Yes, then Namuki. Our non-envious Vaishnavi. Um, Hare Krishna. I think um, envious, um, like I'm looking at myself, when there's an envy arise, it's usually because uh, of a false conception that another person is the enjoyer of something that he possesses. Mm. And also based on the false conception that I will become the enjoyer once I possess that something. Very good. Very good. Yes. But actually, Krishna says, I am the enjoyer of everything. Excellent analysis. I like that a lot. Thank you for that. And also, and also I found that that envious attitude ultimately is not pointed to the other person, but it's pointed to Krishna as well as ourself. Hmm. I'm envious now that you made better points than I made. <laughs> Just to piggyback on that, that's a very good point that you've brought up. Um, and I don't know where I've heard it. I know I've, I don't know where I read it, but uh, I think it's Skanda Prana. Yeah, Skanda Prana. Okay, <laughs> I heard this. But that um, that there are three ways that we envy Krishna. One is that uh, we want to be the supreme enjoyer. The supreme second is supreme controller. Right, what's the third one? Uh, to be the friend of everyone. And, oh, really? And that, that is really um, probably the one that we get confused uh, the most because we think we can be everyone's friend and our job is really to help people to connect with their real friend that's that's sustainable and eternal uh, even beyond living uh, beyond life itself. Right. Yeah, just try to be everyone's friend to see how that works. Yeah. Yeah, this is a lot of work to have friends. Yeah, <laughs> well, even even Yudhisthira. This is actually going to come up in the uh, Sunday open house class I'm giving this afternoon, Krishna willing, um, unless Nandamuki shows me up again. <laughs> um, uh, Yudhisthira Maharaj was called. Uh, well, there's this term ajata shatru, right? And it was applied to Yudhisthira Maharaj very much, at least in Prabhupada's books, right? That one whose enemy was never born, right? But, it, not but it's, but it's interesting because Duryodhana, you know, there's people who were, who were uh, enemies of Yudhisthira, but he never considered so-called enemies his enemy. But, some, so, yes, uh, but at, that doesn't take away from your point at all. Um, because, and how could he become a jata shatru? Only because he's a devotee of Krishna. Right? But yes, that's a very good point. Instead of getting everyone to like us, we want to uh, understand that, uh, help people understand that Krishna is uh, their surit, suritam sarvabhutanam, that he's a friend. And, and Yudhisthira was so non-envious that Dhritarashtra was living in his house after all of that. Yes. It's unbelievable. Yes, and not only that, but he was he was really upset when Dhritarashtra was you know he goes because every day he would wake up and go and pay obeisances to Dhritarashtra and respects Gandhar, Gandhari, um, and then 
they disappeared. And then he was so shocked by this and so upset. What did I do? What did I do? And it was only when Narda, Narda, Narda came and actually, I wouldn't say chastised, but corrected. No, no Vidura uh, went with Dhritarashtra and Gandhari. I think it was Narada. Narada went to him and said that uh, one who is in the grips of the Sarpa, the snake of death, cannot release someone else. So it's a very instructive chapter, chapter 13 of the first canto. We've spoken about this before. But he was saying that Yudhisthira was in illusion thinking himself the maintainer of Dhritarashtra and Gandhari, right? Where actually Krishna is the maintainer, right? And earlier in the chapter, Vidura is preaching to Dhritarashtra, thinking that uh, you, you, know, you, you think you're dependent upon Yudhisthira and the Pandavas, but actually you're only dependent on Krishna. So they were both, they were, so um, Dhritarashtra was um, in illusion thinking that someone else was his maintainer, and Yudhisthira was in illusion thinking himself the, maintain, the, main, the maintainer. And of the two, it's sometimes said that that's a stronger illusion. The illusion of, the, of even the parent, not that a parent shouldn't do their duty, but the parent thinking that, oh, my child would be helpless without me, forgetting that Krishna is ultimately there to care. So wow, some real deep thank you for all this wonderful uh, insights. I really, thank you so much, Nandimuki. Those are really, uh, really strong points. Anything else on Envy? Yes. Yeah, uh, I was also thinking how, you know, Prithu Maharaj was doing these hundred horse sacrifices, and he was doing that, like, to get power to do his service. Uh-huh. So, th so this was also something, like, in the Vedic culture, there was such uh, knowledge about this, that piety is what brings this position or power, and that's how it can be maintained. Right. But, but... You know, in the modern culture, when we are not aware of that, then it easily breeds envy. Like the moment you see like somebody's position or something, you know, so quickly. Uh, so it's like nice to remember that, whether it's material or spiritual, both ways. You know, there's this piety that that's what mm. yes. keeps somebody's position. You know, really. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Shall we carry on? Text number three. The Supreme Personality of God, Lord Vishnu, who is present in everyone's heart is the Supersoul, and he is the proprietor of all planets and the enjoyer of the results of all sacrifices. He was personally present at the sacrifice made by King Prithu. So Krishna showed up. When Lord Vishnu appeared in the sacrificial arena, Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, and all the chief predominating personalities of every planet, as well as their followers, came with him. When he appeared on the scene, the residents of Gandharva Loka the great sages and the residents of Saraloka all praised him. The Lord was accompanied by the residents of Siddhaloka and Vidyadharaloka, all the descendants of Diti and the demons and the Yakshas. He was also accompanied by the chief associates named Sunanda and Nanda, great devotees who are always engaged in the service of the Supreme Personality of God, as well as the great sages named Kapila, Narada, Dattatreya, and masters of mystic powers headed by Sanakumar, all attended the great sacrifice with Lord Vishnu. My dear Vidura, in that great sacrifice, the entire land came to be like the milk-producing Kamadenu, 
And thus, by performance of jagna, all daily necessities for life were supplied. Prabhupada writes that yagna means Lord Vishnu, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and sacrifice means working for the satisfaction of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In this age, however, it is very difficult to find qualified brahmanas who can perform sacrifices as prescribed in the Vedas. Therefore, it is recommended in Srimad Bhagavatam, Jagyai Samkirtana Prayer, that by performing Sankirtan Yagya and by satisfying the Yagya Purusha, Lord Chaitanya, one can derive all the results derived by great sacrifices in the past. King Prithu and others derived all the necessities of life from the earthly planet by performing great, by performing great sacrifices. Now this Sankirtan movement has already been started by the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. People should take advantage of this great sacrifice and join in the society's activities. Then there will be no scarcity. If Sankirtan Yagya is performed, there will be no difficulty, not even in industrial enterprises. Therefore, this system should be introduced in all spheres of life, social, political, industrial, commercial, etc., then everything will run very peacefully and smoothly. So, first thing was I, I thought um, that we there's so many times that in re past few cantos practically we um, Prabhupada would often say, okay, and the yagya for this age. So sometimes I skip over those because it's, he says it so often. So I thought, no, one time at least highlight this because so important. Whenever Prabhupada, you know, we talk about this the means of perfection in previous ages, um, like performing sacrifices, uh, to understand that in this age, Jagyai Sankirtana prayer, Yajantihi Sumedisa, that the Sankirtan Yagya is the sacrifice for this age. And I think it's interesting that he mentions even industrial, right? So he had this vision of people uh, having a kirtan before uh, you know, starting their work in the factories. And things like that, and and you could say there's there's a something a little bit akin to that that's been going on in, in Iskon India for the last oh, I think three or four years, where devotees have gone to industrialists, and in December they would buy Bhagavad Gita's for all of their employees, sometimes ten thousand Bhagavad Gita's or something like that, and they would, uh, uh, in I know in in Gopalakshmaraj and in Delhi they were doing like this with with great success, so. It's a, it's kind of in the, in the same vein as uh, what Prabhupada. But I think it's it, it is interesting. He didn't he didn't just limit Sankirtan to the temples or even to your home worship, right? But in industrial places, in politics, what is, what's the list? In social, political, industrial, commercial, right? I remember when I was kind of just moved to India, so I hadn't seen a lot of things in India, and I remember going to. Um, the M Block Market in Greater Kailash, and uh, there's this one store that's kind of like sold some things from the West. In those days, it was impossible to get anything from the West, right? You know, we, had, you know. So, but I remember I got there just as he was opening up, and he was offering his incense to the cash register, you know, <laughs> things like that. So, um, it would have been better if he started the day with uh, some Hari Nam, like that. Some thoughts on this? Yes. This uh, mirrors the points made in chapter 3 by Lord Krishna in Bhagavad Gita. Oh, Bhagavad Gita, okay. That what the, essence, the necessity of performing a guess 
and underlines the same principle that the human beings are supposed to perform yagyas to please the demigods and the supreme lord right. for they provide the necessities of life and it's a cooperative coexistence between the living beings and the demigods right it's an i scratch your scratch back you scratch mine program but then he says jagya sishastina santo munjate sarvaklivisai right that you must offer your food in sacrifice otherwise you're eating only sin and then was it last week we read that quote that uh, just by taking prashad if you become habituated you probably said right to taking prashadam then you get a human guaranteed a human birth at least minimum in your next life so yes so yes, there's a lot in there and and also the whole chain of connection between the vedic sac vedic principles and ultimately vishnu that connection yeah yeah, cycle of sacrifice. Anything else on this? So it's 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 I I find that it's a uh, and we could talk about chanting all day long, right? But it's a challenge to something that you do every day to make it ever fresh and make it meaningful. Because you can you say, gosh, because you know, um, you know, there's devotees in this room who've been chanting on these bees for 40, 45, 50 years, every day, and, you know, can just, okay, well, I've got to do my day, you know, got to get those 16 things, you know. Um, there's a nice little book that we gave out to all the SGGS members, um, sannyasis, gurus, and GBCs. It was, it's a very small book by Mahatma Prabhu, um, 20 Affirmations about Japa. I didn't bring it with me. A very, very nice, very, you know, it's like, you can read it in 10 minutes. Um, it's just... One of them is, when I chant, I chant. I don't have any other, you know, you've seen it? Yeah, and, uh, and the chanting is my way of repairing my relationship with Krishna. It was another one that I remember. Uh, anyways, nice. And they're written in the form of affirmations. Because his point is, because somebody will say, oh, I, he, he even asked the question, well, are affirmations kind of like just some new age Thing. He said, well, think of it in the negative. If you pick up your bigs, beads and you think, okay, it's going to be the same as yesterday. Just got to get these things done. I don't have a taste, but I got it. You know, I promise, so I'm going to do it. So that's a negative affirmation. And, it, and it's very self-fulfilling, isn't it? If you, if you think like that, that's what your job is going to be like. Right? So his point, if, if you think your job is going to be really positive and really strong and really connect you with Krishna, then there's a much better chance that that's actually what it's going to do. By Krishna's mercy. It was really nicely done. Okay. So, the flowing rivers supplied all kinds of tastes sweet, pungent, sour, etc. And very big trees supplied fruit uh, and honey in abundance. The cows, having eaten sufficient green grass, supplied profuse quantities of milk, yogurt, clarified butter, butter and similar other necessities. And Prabhupada writes If the rivers are not polluted, and are allowed to flow in their own way, or sometimes allowed to flood the land, the land will become very fertile and able to produce all kinds of vegetables, trees, and plants. The word rasa, so that's, that's important that the rivers are not polluted. Rivers are very, very important. Um, practically, Southern California wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Colorado River. Because it's a desert, it's basically, you know, and it's such a powerful river that it just provides so much of the water, as just as an example, right? Um, 
but we know rivers can get very polluted, right? Even it's, uh, I forgot, you know, just uh, the, the statistics, but, you know, because the Ganga is so pure, right, when it's coming out of Gangotri, it's like, it's just wonderful, right? Uh, and we understand that in one sense it doesn't become polluted. We, 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 we read that in the uh, nectar, of devotion, uh, nectar of Instruction. But so much stuff is poured into the Ganga by the time it gets to uh, Ganga Sagara at the end of its journey, right? Or what to speak of the Jamuna River, right? So it's so sad when rivers are, uh, are polluted. And interesting, you know what, like the, the, I did a little research. The, the most un, one of the most unpolluted rivers, of course, Ganga and Jamuna from their source are totally not polluted, right? They're just, they're just pristine, right? Um, and the Ganga is coming from, from the heavenly plant, right? I mean, the Ganga is on the head of Lord Shiva. I mean, you know, it's really <laughs> specially surcharged. But interestingly, one of, you know, just in the, kind of the standard sense of the word, one of the most unpolluted rivers in the world, believe it or not, is the Thames. It goes through London. It's, it's hard to believe. But, and then when you see some, oh gosh, I was in China once, I was in the, uh, the Yellow River, what's it called in China? Yeah, the Yanzi. Oh, it's so polluted. It's practically not a river. When I get, at least when I was there in uh, Shanghai, would it be? is it close to Shanghai? Yeah. So, yeah, it's very sad when rivers are are terribly polluted and, and, and industry industries just pour their garbage into them. The ro the word rasa this is very nice. The word rasa means taste. Actually, all rasas are taste within the earth. And as soon as seeds are sown in the ground, various trees sprout up to satisfy our different tastes. For instance, sugarcane provides its juices to satisfy our taste for sweetness. And oranges provide their juices to satisfy our taste for a mixture of sour and, and the sweet. Similarly, there are pineapples and other fruits. At the same time, there are chilies to satisfy our taste for pungency. Although the earth's ground is the same, different tastes arise due to the different kinds of seeds. Isn't that pretty amazing? So the, Krishna says the origin, original fragrance of the, is from the earth, right, in Bhagavad Gita. That doesn't mean if you pick up some dirt and you smell it, it's like, it just smells like dirt, right? But it's amazing that just by the different seed and you add water, you get this, you get a rose, you get a jasmine, right? You get, uh, it's quite amazing. Krishna is such a, a provider of everything to us uh, through the earth. Through the earth. So, um, as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Bijamam Sarvabhutanam, I am the original seed of all existences. Therefore, all arrangements are there. And as stated in Ishopanishad, Purnamidam, complete arrangements for the production of all the necessities of life are made by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. People should therefore learn to, to satisfy the Yajna Purush, Lord Vishnu. Indeed, the living entity's prime business is to satisfy the Lord because the living entity is part and parcel of the Lord. Thus, the whole system is so arranged that the living entity must do his duty as he is constitutionally made. Without doing so, all living entities must suffer. That is the law of nature. So, Purnamidam, uh, there's complete arrangements for us as long as we only take our what is due to us, 
and not hoard things, right? And therefore, then I like this. The living entity's prime business is to satisfy the Lord. So I, I'm going to mention this in the class today, but I was thinking of uh, Arjuna and the eye of the bird. You know that story? Right, everyone, most people know the story. Uh, is it in the Mahabharata? Yeah, it's the Mahabharata. So, yeah, actually, it was that um, Duryodhana was complaining, right, that that Dronacharya was favoring Arjuna, right? So he wanted to prove that he wasn't, and so he put a wooden bird up in a tree, and uh, he had the different uh, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. Uh, they said, "Take aim." And before they took aim, he said, what do you see? And they would say, I see the bird, I see the sky above, I see the tree, I see the branches, I see the leaves. And he said, next. And they all kind of said things similar, maybe a little more focused. And so finally Arjuna said, what do you see? And he says, I see the eye of the bird. He said, what else do you see? I see nothing else. He said, okay, take aim. Right, so that, that, that uh, examples there, as it says about here, are prime duty. So there's so many distractions in this world from, uh, and so many of the, most of those distractions remind us of illusion, remind us that we are our body, remind us of how important it is to deal with the temporary things of this world. And it takes this kind of, uh, uh, means one, one single mind. It takes this kind of single-minded determination, and of course, the mercy of Krishna, to to keep remi to remember that our prime business is to satisfy the Lord, because there's so, there's just so many. I, I know I've quoted this so often, but it's just such a great line from T. S. Eliot: "Distracted from distractions by distractions." You know, there's just so many distractions. Number one probably being cell phones, right? Um, there's so many, so many distractions, you know. And the, and if you look at like a, the average calendar, we again we've talked about this, but the average calendar just is full of distractions, <laughs> unless your calendar says Janmashtami, Gorpurnim, you know, right? But usually most people it's uh, okay, you know. Uh, Chris, well, Christmas can be spiritual. New Year's, uh, Valentine's Day, March Madness. It's even called Madness, right? March Madness. And then, you know, this, if you're into sports, this playoff and then that playoff and that, the whole, your whole year is filled with sport. And then the next year, again, again. And, you know, if you're into music, the newest music that comes, and just distractions after the politics and another election, another election. There's this, this, this week the, the Indian election starts, and, and they're already talking about the elections, right, for, you know, that's a year and a half now in America, and just distractions, 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 distractions. We get older, our health gets worse, distractions, got to go more doctor, you know, distractions, distractions from the prime business. And it's easy to just live a life of distractions. Right. Any thoughts on so many things here, right? The, the, the idea of how important the polluted rivers and how terrible it is to pollute a river. It's actually sinful to pollute a river, right? And then this whole point about rasa coming from the earth 
and then about our prime duty and distractions. Nandamuki, what wisdom do you have for us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Wait, wait. Rivers are really like the veins, the veins yeah. of the earth. And uh, they get, you know, when you think of how polluted they are, it's like having toxic blood coming through your body. It's no wonder the earth is in such a mess. Yeah. It's very sad. And it's so nice if you're beside a, a pure river. We used to, I, I remember one time I went with the uh, Gurukul boys in Vrindavan to uh, just like 10 miles north of Rishikesh. And we, we, we camped right on the banks of the river. And there it's Ganga so pure. It's just so, it's so peaceful to the mind also, right? A river is, you know, is, um, and there's the sound of a river, right? It's, uh, it's really, really wonderful to be uh, by a pristine river or a pristine lake even. And an ocean also. The water is very powerful. Yes. Wait, microphone. Hello, Krishna. So um, I used to work at NASA temporarily. Okay. And I also minded in economics. Okay. And they have a term called externality. Ex externality. Externality. Yeah. And what it means is basically when you produce something like a phone, you're supposed to figure out the cost to the environment. Uh-huh. And so when you buy a phone, you've already paid for your debt to the environment. So basically, if people don't pay their bills, they have to pay for it indirectly. So if you pay your bills and you've paid for your phone, you're not really responsible for the pollution. Does that make sense? Not completely. But there's, st in other words, we, okay, we pay Apple and Apple makes their money, but um, in order to make a phone, I guess you have to extract things from the earth, right? Right. And how do you, the, you don't, you can't like, you know, write a check out to Boomi Davy, right? And at the same time though, Mother Boomi supplies things for us. But Maybe I'm getting too spiritual here because I'm talking about Mother Boomi and things. Right, but, but the people who make the phones and the factories and who pollute the rivers, they are getting paid by you. Right. You paid for the phone. Right. Okay, that makes sense. But then do the people that pollute the rivers, do they use that money to clean up the rivers? They, well, that's why it should be priced in. Oh, they should be priced in, yeah. Okay, got it. Yes, but generally, at least in most countries that I've seen, I don't know about what happens here, but at least in China and India, it doesn't seem that they, um, they do much to pay back. <laughs> it's, it's a one-way street. But the thing, and Prabhupada would often say that it's, you know, because I guess in the 70s there was, um, I remember this growing up, there was a lot of propaganda about overpopulation. You don't hear it so much today, but maybe I don't read the news that much today. Uh, and he was saying, he was talking about the myth of overpopulation. First of all, because, you know, Prabhupada was smart. He traveled around the world and he would see plot, empty plots. And he knew from growing up how much food you could produce in that empty plot. You could, I mean, anyone, if anyone here has had a garden, it's amazing how much a small garden can, can produce. What to speak of acres and acres and acres of land. And then, of course, if you're not using that land, for example, to grow tobacco, right, or, or even, you know, 
corn that is not for human consumption but is meant to feed animals so that you can kill the animals and then right there, there there's um mother mother Bumi is supplying unlimited things and and also it, it seems to be from the shastra it seems to be an indication that there's not just like a limited supply of things but if mother Bumi is pleased she can provide more Yeah, and later in one of the purports, if we get to it today, there's a talk about pesticides also. Other thoughts on this? Andy, I, I heard you're going... Yeah, because <sighs> I think this is all theoretical because uh, when the Europeans came to North America, it was a paradise. You could drink out of any stream. Of course. All the rivers were pristine. But the age of Kali had already begun and their rivers were destined to all get ruined. You know, despite that they had been there for thousands of years and hadn't ruined them, they were going to get ruined. So even when Prabhupada says that there's unlimited bounty, it's only theoretical. I mean, you're not going to, I don't believe you're going to get that in the age of Kali. So you should just think about it to help your spiritual advancement. But to, well, to hope that you're going to do something that's going to change Kali. I don't think it's possible. Uh, that is a one important angle that... Um, we can't fix everything, and everything's a mess. So it's good to get, let, you know, as Lord, as uh, George Harrison wrote, "Hope to get out of this place by the Lord Sri Krishna's grace, <laughs> my salvation from the material world." Uh, and at the same time, uh, that Kali Yuga is inevitable. In many places, Prabhupada would write that the one thing that can uh, change the tide is God consciousness. And specifically, he would talk about chanting, like we read recently. So there is um, that possibility by the mercy of God and by the mercy of Lord Chaitanya. But you're right that Kali Yuga is also an arrangement of the Lord. You know, he created the Yuga cycles. And it is uh, the Iron Age, and it is the age of um, quarrel and hypocrisy. And it seems to, the heat of quarrel and hypocrisy seems to have been turned up in the last few years, right? So, um, but, but a devotee sees the inevitability that you bring up, and therefore on one hand is, yes, you know, hopefully get out of this place by the Lord Sri Krishna's grace. And on the other hand, knows that ultimately Krishna can do anything, and at least let me help some people. Even if I help one person, um, while I'm getting out of this place by the Lord Sri Krishna's grace, that's wonderful. So, so there's so you know we, there's different ways of looking at the same thing, and both can be a Krishna conscious view. But that's the standard view um, that many devotees have, and, and it's not a it's a it's it's a uh, reasonable conclusion on one level, and then there's another level. Is that all right? Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Well, um, King Prithu was presented with various gifts from the general populace and predominating deities of all planets. The oceans and seas were full of valuable jewels and pearls, and the hills were full of chemicals and fertilizers. Here's that verse. Four kinds of edibles were produced profusely. Um, 
And in the very end of the purport, Prabhupada says, in this age, so many factories, uh, in this age, so many factories for the manufacture of fertilizers have been opened. But when the personality of God is pleased by the performance of Jagna, the hills automatically produce fertilizing chemicals which help produce edibles in the fields. Everything is dependent on the people's acceptance of the Vedic principles of sacrifice. So it's, it's really, um, it's really a Kali Yuga thing, right? Fertilizers and um, uh, insecticides, right? They, they, you, try, you try to solve one problem and you create another problem, right? Isn't that just like a, such a, a classic, right? So they do help in some ways. There are some insects and, th and, and things that uh, can ruin a crop, right? And these kill that, uh, those um, invading species, we could call them. And at the same time, they, it, it can uh, uh, ruin the groundwater it can uh, contaminate the soil, and also those also uh, kill non-targets, right? Uh, insects and others that are actually helpful to the ecosystem. You know, um, I did. A, I'm looking at my notes because I did a little research on this. Um, so it's just <laughs> a solution creates more problems. <laughs> it's just a, such a typical Kali Yuga dilemma that we're in, and. Uh, Right, you know, and, and of course, in some ways, people in America know that. You know, you just mentioned that word Monsanto, and everyone goes, ah. You know. right, although now they, they no longer exist. They sold the company to Bayer. But anyway, um, you know, so it, it's just, yeah. Whereas here, Prabhupada is saying by performing yagnas, uh, Bhumi can produce natural fertilizers. Yes? Just a question up. Also read somewhere like Kali Yuga. There's some people who, even though it's Kali Yuga for some people, they're also living in Satya Yuga at the same time. <coughs> so it's not necessarily Kali Yuga. I don't know if I've read that. What what Prabhupada? Uh, what I've what I've read is Prabhupada would say that devotional service and the kingdom of God are non-different. So if we're performing devotional service, we're actually in Vaikuntha. Um, at least for that period that we're doing that devotional service. So through bhakti, it's so powerful that, uh, and the soul is actually engaging in its constitutional position as a servant of Krishna, that it's not, in one sense, um, affected by, by things like Kali Yuga, or even Satya Yuga for that matter. Um, so there's certain things that if also in Kali Yuga, if, if for example, Prabhupada would say, he once said about Chicago, that if they just stopped, because at one time Chicago or Aurora, Illinois also, were like the slaughterhouse capital of America. Animals would be trans, transported there and then killed. He said if that just stopped in that one place, he said something about the weather, would you know, things would improve. So we can create even beyond Satya Yuga by absorbing ourselves 10% in bhakti. But I don't think I've ever, I, I haven't read what you, you know, specifically the point you're making, but the general idea that bhakti being so powerful. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. So any thoughts on fertilizers, groundwater, soil contamination, and natural fertilizing chemicals? 
is that we've gone so far away that, that we think if someone is doing, like a small community is growing things organically and using natural fertility, we think, oh, that's really far out. We make a, a uh, TV documentary about it. <laughs> but it's actually the way people lived for thousands of years. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Or a comment. Well, even if Monsanto make the chemicals, who made Monsanto? Who made the, the people's brains? Like, the, well, okay, so you, that, well, now you're getting to really deeply philosophical points, right? That because uh, obviously, ultimately, intelligence comes from Krishna. He says, "Bumir apo nalo vayu kangmano evacha ahankara itiyame." That earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego, Krishna creates. So it's all Krishna's fault. Is that our conclusion? Everyone's laughing. So what is our conclusion then? You have the answer? Wait, 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 wait. So uh, I don't want to blame anyone here. Basically, it's you mean you don't want to blame like? Uh, yeah, basically, it's not industries, it's not the corporations. It is like every human's greed. They want more comfort. They want more food, more sophisticated food, sophisticated cloth, and like uh, it's all because of the greed. And who and created the greed? You know, basically, it's it's like you know, basically, kings and queens uh, are the uh, representative of the kingdom. Where, like, when they do that, like, you know, it's an envy again. Like, they want to become like that, yeah. And the cycle goes on. So, uh, since there is no proper spiritual knowledge that, like, about the contentment and consciousness, you know, people are distracted to the Maya. Okay. One second, get the mic. So, Prophet always said that uh, man proposes, God disposes. Right. And so, it really boils down to what we want and what we desire. And um, we've, we've taken these bodies because we desire to enjoy separately from Krishna. Yes. And there's a consequence to it, sadly. You can't, you know, it's not unlimited enjoyment. There's a, there's a consequence. And so... Um, yeah, even you want to be a thief or a murderer, Krishna will give you the abilities, the ability in man, the intelligence. Because it's your desire. It's because yeah. it's your desire. So it's yeah. really, it's a cooperative effort. You know that Krishna, if you want to, if you desire Krishna fully, Krishna will give you intelligence how to uh, mm. go back to Him. But if you have any attachment or desire to enjoy separately, Krishna will also help you figure out how to get all that too. <laughs> She says, Chatur Varnyam Mayashristam Guna Karma Vibhagasa Tasyakatarma Pimam Vidhi Akatarma Avyam. He says that uh, I'm not the doer of where you fit in the world. That's up to your desires. Right? So he gives us that, that independence. So, uh, yes, the, so even uh, Srila Prabhupada, I remember I used, I, when I first read this, you know, 40 years ago, I just smiled. It was uh, when he said that. Um, Krishna provides the intelligence to atheists to not believe in him. Right? Because, you know, for a theist, just reading that last purport, right? You just read, of course, there's intelligence behind pineapples on one hand and oranges and, and uh, sugar cane and chilies, and that just came by a big bang or by a singularity. I mean, you know, for a theist, it's like, you actually believe that? You know, how could, how, you know, how is it possible that you thought from a singularity, right, the latest is a singularity, I think, and that, you know, 
how, you know, but Krishna, you know, Krishna gives us our intelligence according to our desire. So yes, so Monsanto, yeah, you know, whatever Monsanto, we don't, we don't have friends and enemies in this world, but uh, that, um, and, and who knows, it may, the, the original idea of Monsanto or of insecticides or pesticides might have been a reasonably positive thing that they wanted to accomplish. But as is the result of things in this world, often you try to do something good. And, you know, even what's that saying? The, the road to hell is paved by good intentions. <laughs> yes. Yes. What's that? That's what an externality. Okay. Thank you for that. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, therefore, you know, part of us is just like, you know, this is just not a place for, uh, what does Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur say? The material world is just not a place for a gentleman. You know, it's just, uh, and, and, and I think, oh, yeah, I remember uh, thinking about this also um, uh, in talking to a person who proclaims to be an atheist. Um, it's a whole different way of looking at the world. You see, for, for a devotee, we actually believe Krishna when he says dukalayam. When he says anityam asukam loka, where he says it's not a place of happiness, it's not. It is a place of misery. We take Krishna at his word, but part of, because part of a person who doesn't believe in God is you know how to, how come there's so much suffering in this world, right? God's supposed to be benevolent, so it's a whole different way. We understand. Yes, Krishna is totally benevolent. Yes, and part of his suffering is to encourage us to get out of this place and go to the spiritual. That's totally different than a lot of people's mindset. No, this world should be a place where we, where it's nice and, and, you, and basically you enjoy things. So it's a whole different paradigm that we're looking at the world. And therefore you can come very easily to a different conclusion. That makes sense? What time is it? Oh, we still have a little time. So text 10. King Prithu was dependent on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who was known as Adhoksaja. Because King Prithu performed so many sacrifices, he was superhumanly enhanced by the mercy of the Supreme Lord. That was, you were saying he was empowered, that's what uh, Machi was saying. King Prithu's opulence, however, could not be tolerated by the King of Heaven, Indra, who tried to impede the progress of his opulence. When Prithu Maharaj was performing the last horse sacrifice, Ashwamedha Yagan, Prabhupada repeatedly in these purports mentions that the horses do not die and they're revived. Uh, King Indra, Indra, invisible to everyone, stole the horse intended for sacrifice. He did this because of his great envy of King Prithu. When King Indra was taking away the horse, he dressed himself to appear as a liberated person. Actually, this dress was a form of cheating for it falsely created an impression of religion. When Indra went into outer space in this way, the great sage Atri saw him and understood the whole situation. When the son of King Prithu was informed by Atri of King Indra's trick, he immediately became very angry and followed Indra to kill, to kill him, calling, wait, wait! King Indra was fraudulently dressed as a sannyasi, having knotted his hair on his head and smeared ashes all over his body. 
Upon seeing such dress, the son of King Prithu considered Indra a religious man and pious sannyasi. Therefore, he did not release his arrows. When Atrimuni saw that the son of King Prithu did not kill Indra but returned deceived by him, Atrimuni again instructed him to kill the heavenly king because he thought that Indra had become the lowliest of all demigods due to his impeding the execution of King Prithu's sacrifice. Being thus informed, the grandson of King Vena immediately began to follow Indra, who was fleeing through the sky in great haste. He was very angry with him, and he chased him just as the king of the vultures chased Ravana. When Indra saw that the son of Prithu was chasing him, he immediately abandoned his false dress and left the horse. Indeed, he disappeared from that very spot, and the great hero, the son of Maharaj Prithu, returned the horse to his father's sacrificial arena. My dear Lord Vidura, when the great sages observed the wonderful prowess of the son of King Prithu, they all agreed to give him the name Vichitasva. Did I pronounce that right? Vichitasva. Got that? Was that better? My dear Vidura, Indra, being the king of heaven and very powerful, immediately brought a dense darkness upon the sacrificial arena. Covering the whole scene in this way, he again took away the horse, which was chained with golden shackles near the wooden instrument where animals were sacrificed. The great Atri again pointed out to the son of King Prithu, like, you know, <laughs> uh, that Indra was fleeing through the sky. The great hero, the son of Prithu, chased him again. But when he saw that Indra was carrying in his hand a staff with a skull at the top and was again wearing the dress of a sannyasi, he still chose not to kill him. When the great sage Atri gave directions, the son of King Prithu became very angry and placed an arrow on his bow. Upon seeing this, King Indra, again, immediately abandoned the false dress of a sannyasi and giving up the horse, made himself invisible. Then the great hero, Vichistas, gosh, how come some names? But there's, there's four syllables. Vijitasva. The son of King Prithu again took the horse and returned to his father's sacrificial arena. Arena. Since that time, certain men with a poor fund of knowledge have adopted the dress of a false sannyasi. It was King Indra who introduced this. Whatever different forms Indra assumed as a mendicant because of his desire to seize a horse were symbols of atheistic philosophy. Did I? Oh, 24. Uh, in this way, King Indra, in order to steal the horse from King Prithu's sacrifice, adopted several orders of sannyas. Some sannyasis go naked, and sometimes they wear red garments and pass under the name of uh, kapalika. These are simply symbolic representations of their sinful activities. These so-called sannyasis are very much appreciated by sinful men because they are all godless atheists and very expert in putting forward arguments and reasons to support their case. We must know, however, that they are only passing as adherents of religion and not so in fact. Unfortunately, bewildered persons accept them as religious and being attracted to them, they spoil their life. Didn't I say to read 23, was it? Do you have it there? No, did I say to read the purport? Yes, okay. So, uh, what time is it? 
let's not get into uh, bogus sannyasis with uh, two minutes left spare. <laughs> we can talk about them uh, next week. Okay, so I'll send. We didn't. I thought we might finish this chapter, but we didn't. But we had some really good uh, discussions. So thank you for that. And uh, next week we will continue with this chapter, and we likely will finish this chapter and move on to. Uh, Lord Vishnu's appearance in the sacrificial arena of Maharaj Pritchard because it's very interesting what we're going to read next week because uh, one thing that's interesting, so Indra was the one who was in the wrong, right? I mean, correct? Yes? But when Brahma comes to make peace, he goes to Prithu and he, and, he, and he asks him to do the right thing. Usually we would go to the wrongdoer, Right? Here, he went to the person who you could say is going to be more cooperative, right? And basically saying, listen, you know, he's kind of like this. Could you just not mind and just do 99 of these and forget the 100th? And that'll pacify him and make peace. But it's an interesting, um, especially from a person who's interested in conflict resolution, it's an interesting how he ended up doing that, right? That he went to Prithu and not to Indra. And and even though Indra did so many bad things, it, you know he's still you know in one verse he's even called Bhagavan, not literally like God, but just at a very very powerful. So Indra always seems to get himself in some trouble, and always seems to kind of get out of it somehow. <laughs> Ultimately, um, right? He keeps, his job. he keeps his job. Yes, right. Yeah. But uh, it's, 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 so that'll be very, so we'll talk about sannyasis next week and we'll also talk about this, um, the way that Lord Brahma uh, um, brought, a, you know, brought about a compromise. And, uh, and also, but interestingly, refocus Prithu on his main service. So coming attractions for next week. Mm. Hare Krishna, all glory to Srila Prabhupada.